Good afternoon, everyone. I am broadcasting here from the Allentown Rose Garden. And the reason we're doing it this way is uh, because a couple weeks ago in church we had some technical difficulties. We didn't realize till after the service that the uh, <laughs> recording was completely lost. Um, but we didn't want you to miss out on the continuous strain as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so we chose to do this down here in the Rose Garden here in Allentown. And it is the peak of prom season and wedding season. And so there's a lot of people down here taking photos and everything else. Uh, part of the irony of this situation is that I'm, I'm here to re-preach my sermon on divorce for you. Uh, because Jesus does have something to say about that in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, so I'm just going to hop right to it. Uh, first by reading what Jesus has to say about it. This is Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Just a small selection. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's kind of straightforward. You know, I mentioned a few weeks back, that I had a lot of pet peeves about certain people that used to come into the deli when I worked there. And uh, I, uh, first off, I, I had people who came through that would say they were just looking and weren't actually looking to buy anything. And I found that very irritating because they never ended up spending a dime. Um, and it became sort of a, an item of conscience for me because I feel almost obligated these days. If I'm going to go into a shop, I feel like I need to spend money so that I'm not wasting their time. And that's just how I kind of feel about things. But I, I brought that story up when I did. Uh, in relation to dealing with lust. Because Jesus essentially painted a picture of, of lust as being uh, window shopping for sex, basically, without ever intending to buy. Uh, lust is desire, but disconnected from commitment. And Jesus told us that adultery begins with a lustful look. Uh, sin never happens in a vacuum. It begins with a disordered desire. It begins with coveting something. Uh, but there are other ways to dishonor marriage than literal adultery or even a lustful look. So today we, we continue this mini-series on uncomfortable topics and the stuff you're not supposed to talk about in public uh, by turning our attention with Jesus to divorce. And I'm going to begin by mentioning a, another deli story. Uh, yeah, I didn't like the people who came in and were only eating samples and that kind of thing, but there was one customer who outdid most of those. Uh, we had a lady who came from us? Who came to us a lot, uh, and she bought a lot of things from us. But she always complained the entire time. Uh, I had a, a few ladies that were like that, in fact. But this is this was a special one. Uh, and one time, she came and bought a, a pound of turkey bacon, and she returned the next week and demanded that we replace it free of charge. And I said, "Well, what was wrong with it?" And she said, "Well, it tasted okay, but I didn't like the look of it." And uh, I said, "Well, can I see it?" And she said, "No, we ate it all." And she showed me a picture of it frying in the pan, and it looked perfectly fine, but she wanted me to notice there was like a hole in a couple of the pieces, and it was a little odd to her, and so she wanted her money back or else a replacement. Now, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've never tried to return bacon that I already ate, so that seemed like a really special kind of a person that would do that kind of thing. It seems to me like if you've already eaten and enjoyed something, it seems like you've kind of committed yourself to that purchase, right? Uh, but I think what Jesus is saying is that most divorces are kind of like that. It's like returning a meal after you already ate it or, or asking for a refund at the theater after you already watched the movie. Uh, Jesus has already explained how adultery starts with lust, so girl-watching men of all ages need to watch out, and women too, for that matter. Everyone who covets something 
or someone, I should say, who isn't their spouse, they're in sin. Uh, If you violate the 10th commandment against coveting by desiring someone who isn't yours, then you are simultaneously breaking the 7th commandment against adultery. Uh, So God doesn't just care about what you do, he cares about what's going on in your heart. And he's continuing on this theme of adultery and how much God hates it. And uh, now he brings in this subject of divorce to make things even more awkward. So it's not just the lookers that he puts on notice. It's the ones who eat the bacon and then try to return it. Um, My mother always warned all of her daughters-in-law that there is a no-return policy on her sons. And, uh, you know, my wife certainly likes that. Uh, Jesus would like that policy, too. God hates adultery. And Jesus says divorce creates adultery, and that's part of what makes it so rotten. Now, this is a sensitive subject, of course, and and I can't think of anybody in my life and anybody in the church, really, who hasn't been impacted by divorce on some level. Uh, My purpose is not to bury all of us in guilt and shame. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do either. Uh, But what Jesus is trying to address is a certain casual attitude toward marriage in his day. And it's an attitude that would be very familiar, I think, to us, because our current age is so very casual about marriage and relationships. Uh, The people of Jesus' day had come to think of marriage as a transaction, Uh, and it's an idea that came from the culture around them. Rome had a very casual attitude towards marriage and divorce, and in some ways they were more advanced than the barbarian cultures that were around them, uh, because, like the Greeks, they practiced monogamy, meaning that they only got married to one person at a time, and that was not the rule in a lot of the cultures around them. But their marriage and divorce practices were very casual. Marriage was not considered a religious institution at all. So a man or a woman could initiate a divorce, and since it wasn't a religious institution, it required absolutely no paperwork. So, if a woman wanted out, she just took her dowry back, and she left, and they were no longer married. In other words, separation and divorce were not distinct ideas in Rome. Marriage was not very formal, so divorce wasn't either. Now, of course, that was the Roman approach to things. Now, you'd like to think that the Jews would have a very different approach to things, but the thing is that the Jews, they've been under Roman rule for about a century at this point, and that's long enough for the culture to rub off on you a little bit. And we know that the local political power was held by the Herodians, and they were Sadducees, and they were not originally Jewish at all, and their marriage practices were very much Roman in flavor. Uh, John the Baptist was executed by Herod for this exact issue. John criticized Herod for swapping wives with his brother, which I would think is a pretty, that's a pretty casual approach to marriage and divorce. Uh, but Jesus has a bigger concern than the Roman culture around, uh, around the nation of Israel. His concern is that the Jews, God's people, had adopted a pretty screwy view of marriage as well. They had managed to find a workaround that made divorce simple. And perversely enough, they had used God's law to do it. And that's why Jesus starts by citing the current understanding of the law. Uh, It was also said, he says, that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, Jesus is not intending to dismiss this idea. The, The concept of a certificate of divorce is actually a pretty compassionate idea in those days, uh, compared to the Roman custom especially. And the origin of the idea came from Deuteronomy 24, which says that when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, 
and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay. All that to say, it's a very bizarrely specific rule. But the basic idea is, if a man divorces his wife, particularly because of some undefined indecency, uh, then he can't just send her home the way the Romans did. He needed to give her a certificate and make it legal. And this was a way of protecting her by documenting what had happened. It was basically a license for her to remarry and a protection against her being stoned for adultery. Uh, Moreover, it also made it so that the first husband couldn't pretend that nothing happened or try to sweep the issue under the rug. It couldn't be a casual thing, in other words. So by sending her away and handing her a document, he couldn't change his mind. He couldn't give her a hard time if she decided to remarry. Uh, She would have a document stating that she was legally free and clear. So that was the point of the certificate, a protection against further harassment and prosecution. But as often happens, people used the law to justify whatever they wanted. They glommed onto this idea of the certificate and figured it was a ticket to freedom, as if the certificate was the main point that God was getting at. So if I want a divorce, all I have to do is put God, to put God's blessing on it, essentially, is to write a certificate. All I got to do is get my legal ducks in a row. And that's not very far removed from how people think about divorce today, is it? Uh, divorce is so common, it's, it's lost a lot of its stigma, and we, we tend to think of divorce as generally an acceptable thing, as long as we go about it ethically. Uh, if we leave her the house and kids and pay our alimony on time and show up to the Little League games, you know, in America you can pay us for the father of the year at that point, you know? One of the few places in modern culture where any stigma remains on divorce is in religious circles, and divorce is generally thought of as a tragedy in the church. Some churches treat it like an unforgivable sin. That's not right either. It's not. But Jesus brings it up because people will always try to justify divorce. It's kind of second nature to immediately come up with exceptions for the divorce rules. Divorce is bad, but my circumstances, they're unique. And there's a problem, I think, with that argument. Uh, because I think the most obvious way you can see that, really, is that the divorce rate has consistently been near, or sometimes over, 50% in America, and that's been true for decades. It's gone down a bit in recent years, but that's mostly driven by the fact that fewer people are getting married at all. So we've taken a very Roman approach to things. We just shack up until one of us gets tired of it, and then people break up. Uh, Right now, recent numbers say that 45% of all American marriages end in divorce. Um... That's not great. Uh, And it's not great when people try again either, because 60% of all second marriages end in divorce, and 73% of all third marriages end in divorce. So three times is not the charm in this sense. Fewer than 1% of all divorced couples ever reconcile and get back together. And, you know, the average length of a failed marriage is just a little over eight years. I used to think of that as a sort of Hollywood statistic, but apparently Hollywood's just a reflection of all of us, really. And I think about it that the main difference between the average divorce and the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard thing is money. Well, that and a whole lot of other weird behavior that the tabloids are just in love with right now. But when people are asked what caused their divorce, the answer is usually in order or something like this. Some variation, number one, is irreconcilable differences, followed by infidelity, and then money issues, followed by abuse, either physical or emotional, and that's a minority. 
Uh, and virtually everybody blames the spouse and not themselves for the breakup. And uh, the statistics in the church are really not a whole lot better than that. Uh, the divorce rate for all professing Christians, people who just categorize themselves as Christians, they, those numbers match or exceed the national averages. Now, if you describe yourself in as, as an evangelical, the numbers are a little bit better, but it's still about 30%. And that's not great. And I bring these statistics up not to dishearten anybody, but to state the obvious truth that we are not in a society that is guilty of taking marriage too seriously. Uh, the statistics are clear that marriage is at best undervalued in America and even in the church. And moreover, this has been true of mankind generally since the Roman Empire, apparently. You know, California was the first state under Ronald Reagan, who ended up being our first divorced president. Uh, it was under him that they passed a no-fault divorce law, whatever that's supposed to mean, as if any uh, divorce has no flaws in it at all. But that's been the tendency since Jesus preached this sermon. People want an easy out. And his point is that God is not happy about this. You know, if Neil Sedaka sang Breaking Up is Hard to Do, I would add Breaking Up is Supposed to be Hard to Do. Our culture wants everything to be painless. That's always true, but, but some things are supposed to hurt. Uh, most translations you'll read of Malachi 2.16 say that God hates divorce. And why wouldn't he? Because divorce is breaking what he made. In the Old Testament, God says that his laws regarding divorce would pollute the land. So I think we can make a case that a low view of marriage is dangerous to a nation. It's worse than wrecking the environment, worse than a corrupt government. It's worse than war. It's worse than poverty. Jesus promised that we'd always have those things, but treating marriage loosely, that will defile the land, he says. So we ignore what Jesus is saying at our peril. He takes marriage seriously because his father takes it seriously, and it bothers him when people cheapen it. And that's what divorce inevitably does. It always has the effect of cheapening God's design, and not only that, it multiplies the sin in the aftermath. If you read verse 32 again, it says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever commit, uh, marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is allowing that not every divorce is wrong. Uh, adultery is grounds for divorce. But the sense I get from this is that the typical no-fault divorce, that's an abomination. Uh, not so much because of the divorce itself, but what it does. If you initiate a divorce and you don't have biblical grounds, you make your spouse an adulterer. And Jesus is saying that you're basically forcing your wife to sin by divorcing her. That's a very interesting statement uh, because it first of all implies that you can be in sin through no fault of your own. Uh, if a man divorces his wife over irreconcilable differences, he makes her an adulterer through no fault of her own. And if she takes an interest in another person, or even she wants her own husband back because she's no longer married to him, it's a terrible position to put her in because now she's suddenly an adulterer even for desiring him. And I think verse 32 implies that even natural affections become sinful. Because if a man sends his wife away and she still has feelings for him, he is causing her to stumble because she's sinning by even looking at him. That's a really perverse thing to do to your spouse. That makes God angry. Uh, so much of this happens today in the name of irreconcilable differences. I said that's an number one cause for the divorces, but it's such a ludicrous phrase, as if it's a news that men and women are different. Uh, like, who knew? I wasn't banking on that when we got married, you know? I think of when George and I got married, you know, when we were dating, she claimed she liked baseball. Like, imagine using that as grounds. Like, no, she actually, she was lying about that. Women are just different. They don't like baseball like I do. You know, it's sad. Um, so, 
you know, it kind of feels like Jesus is picking on people here. And I kind of hated when I had to even prepare a sermon on this topic because I know it hits home for a lot of people and a lot of you who are listening. And some of you have known this topic up close and personal. And I'm sure that was just as true in Jesus' day, the people he's speaking to on this mountain. Uh, And he's broadening the definition of adultery, but also making many other people illegitimate. Like, even if your parents were divorced, this sermon would be insulting because it it would insinuate that you were an illegitimate child. And it's also true that you can't undo a divorce, not easily. Uh, You know, in Jewish law, once that certificate was written and once you had moved on to another person, which made sense back then, the law strictly forbade getting back together again. And that was actually worse than the original divorce. That was the main thrust of that Deuteronomy 24 passage. And yet, here's Jesus saying that even if you follow the letter of the law, you can still be in adultery. You can have all your ducks in a row, legally speaking, and still be in sin. And this teaching strikes at the heart of all our broken relationships, the kind of relationships that are now impossible to reconcile anyway. So why does he bring it up at all? If Jesus is trying to give us life advice, it seems like this isn't that helpful because many of us have never been divorced, and so for us it seems irrelevant, right? Uh, Others have been divorced but can't do anything about it now. Uh, So unless we're in the middle of a divorce, it kind of seems like, well, this isn't that helpful. Why bring it up? Uh, other than to be awkward. Why does Jesus care so much? Well, it's an interesting thing. You know, this this sermon appears, it's recorded here in Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew's Gospel is generally regarded as the most Jewish of the Gospels. It's addressed to Jewish people, and so it focuses heavily on Old Testament themes and fulfillments. And not coincidentally, it's also the Gospel that has the most to say about divorce. In fact, the word divorce appears more in this Gospel than the other three combined. So Matthew, for whatever reason, is interested in this subject. Um, It could be that as a tax collector, he knew more about the state of most of the local marriages in his day. Maybe he knows exactly which people are no longer filing joint tax returns, so he knows what's going on. It could be that his parents were divorced and that he's known this up close in that way. One reason Jesus brings this up is because divorce hurts people. It hurts children. It hurts siblings. It hurts parents who are watching their kids go through them. It hurts the churches that it happens in. It hurts neighborhoods. It obviously hurts the people who are getting divorced themselves. Divorce creates a lot of victims. And Jesus wants them to know that he sees that and that it breaks his heart. And so Jesus apparently has a lot to say about divorce, and for whatever reason, this sticks in Matthew's mind, and I couldn't possibly address this topic without looking at what Jesus says in chapter 19 as well. And he basically explains exactly why divorce bothers him so much, and it's not about the Mosaic Law and issuing certificates. It's about God's design. He says in Matthew 19, starting in verse 3, he says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Well, why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So Jesus says that understanding marriage doesn't require a deep understanding of the Mosaic law. The how-to manual is not found in Deuteronomy 24. The foundational document for marriage starts in Genesis. And Genesis 2 tells us the original purpose and design of marriage, that Adam needed a helper, and marriage was designed to help man fulfill his duty to fill and subdue the earth. And Genesis 3 tells us what went wrong. God even explains why marriage is hard now. He warned that men will become overbearing brutes, and that women will desire their husbands, and it's implied that that will be in an unhealthy way. It's all right there. It all appears in the first three chapters of the Bible. So a proper theology of marriage doesn't begin with the Mosaic regulations. That's like trying to understand the founding of America by reading today's tax code. You know, there was no IRS when the country was founded. That's not going to tell you a whole lot. And the same is true with marriage. You need to go back to the beginning, to the creation, and then you can understand why God is mad because we have made an absolute mess of what was supposed to be the crowning achievement of creation. We are breaking what he made to be good. Now, Jesus says that people have reduced marriage to a legal arrangement or a contract, and that's still true today. Uh, we, we've sort of bought the idea in America that the contract, the certificate, the, 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 the license, if you like, those are the main things. We can make or break it as needed, as if marriage was our idea and God's job is to bless whatever we're going to do with it. And that's why you end up with the debates over so-called gay marriage or people who claim that they married their pet or they married a tree or a building. That was in the news at one point. I remember seeing that. Whatever it may be. But if we reduce marriage to a legal agreement, then we can do anything we want with it, you know? But the literal meaning of divorce, the translation is to put away. Uh, it's, it's a very dismissive thing. It's like putting an animal out to pasture, letting it fend for itself. And that's no way for Christians to treat each other, and it's obviously not what God had in mind, and that's why divorce bothers Jesus. But that Matthew 19 passage is helpful in another way, because Jesus gives us a clue that divorce, like murder and adultery, also happens on a spectrum. It doesn't start with the screaming match or, or what happens in the courtroom during the breakup. Why does he say Moses allowed for divorce? He says it was because of your hardness of heart. So divorce doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, if the seed of murder is unchecked anger, and the seed of adultery is unchecked desire, then the seed of divorce is a hard heart. And that should convict any one of us, whether we're married or not, because we all struggle with hard hearts. Now, there are different schools of thought among Christians when it comes to divorce. Some people say it's only ever allowed for adultery. That's it. And some people argue that porn addiction is tantamount to adultery, and therefore I would make an exception for that, some people would say. Jesus specifies adultery. Uh, Paul mentions abandonment, so it's kind of like adultery and abandonment. They're the sort of two explicit scriptural grounds for when you sometimes might have grounds for divorce. I would say most pastors, most Christians generally would agree that physical abuse certainly rises uh, to something similar to abandonment and may justify divorce. There's a growing number of people who would argue that emotional and psychological abuse can also justify divorce. Uh, we have a PCA committee that's discussing some of that idea right now. And uh, look, unlike most of the people who use this phrase in the political class and everything else, uh, I actually saw the classic 1944 film Gaslight, 
uh, and I saw what Charles Boyer did to Ingrid Bergman in that film. That is definitely psychological abuse. That's not cool. Uh, so, yes, there is possible to have serious non-physical abuse in a, in a marriage. Any kind of abuse is possible, and they can all be very extreme. Uh, I do worry sometimes that we may be looking too hard for new excuses for divorce, which is exactly what the confession warns us against. It says that the, the corruption of man is such that we are prone to study arguments in favor of divorce. In other words, that we're constantly looking for a way out. I'd hate to think we're doing that. I don't think that's what the PCA is trying to do. I think they're trying to do their best to weed out bad apples. But, And I don't want to tolerate abuse in marriage. That's disgusting. But at the same time, every sin... It can be considered abusive in some sense, uh, because sin by definition is a form of abuse. Uh, and I don't want terms to become so broad that they lose all meaning. So if every time I fail to love my wife well in a situation, if that can be defined as a form of abuse, then that becomes problematic. On the other hand, uh, there are still other Christians who would claim that divorce is never permissible. Now, I'm not sure how to square that with what Jesus says in this passage. But it's a sad truth that in my very limited experience, some of the loudest voices for marriage permanence are frequently in the least happy marriages. I have known couples who fight like cats and dogs. They, they slander each other, they constantly undermine each other and disrespect each other, uh, all while insisting that they would never commit the grave sin of divorcing each other. Because, you know, apparently it's better to treat each other like crap. I'm not really sure how that works, and I don't think that that is a high view of marriage. But that's why Jesus' point is so important. The biggest threat to marriage, he says, is not divorce, it's hardness of heart. Every broken relationship starts with a cold and unforgiving heart, an unwillingness to pour yourself into the relationship, a, a lack of interest in the other person and what they find interesting, a transactional approach to love and sex, Treating your marriage like a contract instead of a relationship, tolerating your spouse instead of loving them, or reading Deuteronomy for the rules instead of reading the Song of Solomon together. You know, we have a God who created romance, and he even saw fit to include erotic poetry in the scripture, and yet we turn marriage into a business arrangement. Marriage needs to be more than not getting divorced. That is not the vows that we take. Divorce rates are merely a symptom of a problem that starts much earlier in the relationship with what Moses calls some indecency. You know, Moses wasn't referring to adultery there because that would result in stoning. There was a clear ramification for that. No, th these divorces that Moses was talking about started with some indecency. The little irritations, the annoyances, pet peeves, sarcastic comments, stuff that a hard heart can't handle. It's the equivalent of returning the bacon after you ate it. Nothing seriously was wrong, it's just a slight imperfection you couldn't let go. Some indecency was found in it, and I want my money back. And the truth is that we all have relationships like that. Uh, relationships are costly, and a lot of the time we don't want to pay the price, and Jesus knows that we're a pretty hard-hearted bunch of people. So Jesus brings up divorce as an extreme example, but who among us is consistently tender-hearted? Divorce comes from hard-heartedness. Yes, that's a fact. But you know what? Staying married while failing to love each other is also hard-hearted. Uh, taking every opportunity to criticize your spouse, that's hard-hearted. Not opening up or being honest with your spouse is hard-hearted. Uh, sleeping with your girlfriend without getting married, that's hard-hearted. 
Not sleeping with your spouse, that's hard-hearted. Holding grudges is hard-hearted. Shacking up is hard-hearted. Vowing to never let anyone break your heart and so intentionally avoiding all relationships, that's like going out of your way to harden your heart. Never getting married because you refuse to commit is hard-hearted. You know, when the disciples heard Jesus' words regarding marriage, they exclaimed that marriage was way too hard for them. If that's how it is, they said, count us out. But avoiding marriage doesn't cure the underlying problem because the sickness is not confined to married people. The problem is universal because we all have a heart problem. Like everything else in this sermon so far that Jesus has been preaching, Jesus is trying to show you that you can't do it. His goal is to make even the best and most respectable among us uncomfortable. Even if divorce is not your problem, your hard heart is. And none of us are living up to God's intentions at creation. You know, the, the biblical characteristics of a hard heart, when you see that used, probably the prime example in Scripture is, is Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. There are 20 mentions of his having a hard heart, but he's not the only one. Uh, God also has rebuked Israel for the same thing. Uh, a hard heart is a proud heart. It's a heart that refuses to hear God and obey. It refuses to submit. It refuses to repent. It refuses to confess sin. It's stubborn and unforgiving and merciless. It's the opposite of fearing the Lord. Um, I think we can all relate to that sometimes. And if you can relate to that, you're in good company because hard-heartedness was also Israel's M.O. Uh, God's people had been warned for thousands of years not to have hard hearts, and we need to hear it apparently again and again because apparently God's people don't seem to listen and we don't learn. So we have some obvious points of application in this text. First off, God's clearly not a big fan of divorce, especially the way it's usually done. Uh, there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce because every broken relationship was made by broken, sinful people who sin and break things. That's what we do. So yes, we should avoid divorce. I think that's clear and obvious. And we need to have a higher view of marriage, especially in the church. But more importantly, I'd say, Jesus wants us to inspect our hearts because divorce is only a symptom of the underlying problem, a problem that will affect all of your relationships, not just marriage, because you have a heart that is naturally inclined to be hard, and you need someone who can soften it, and that'll take a miracle. Now, thankfully, we have a God who does those, but the Sermon on the Mount is not intended to be a guide to living your best life now. Uh, Jesus' intention is to strip you instead of every ounce of self-confidence in your own righteousness. The sin that is so deeply ingrained that he wants you to know that he takes sin very personally. But he also wants you to think of another thing. There's one other place where divorce gets mentioned in Matthew's Gospel, and I want to point this out because it actually shows up very early in chapter 1, in fact. And we read in chapter 1 of this Gospel that Joseph nearly divorced Mary over her uh, unexpected pregnancy. And Matthew says he was a just man. And that was why he was going to do it. As a just man, to humanize, he had every right to walk away from this arrangement. But God intervened and he sent an angel to tell Joseph, look, hang in there. Uh, the, the, the baby's from the Holy Spirit and all. And Joseph stayed and he raised Jesus. And that is the opposite of a hard heart. Uh, Joseph's heart was open and pliable to what God told him. And because of that, Jesus was not raised by a single mom. And I, I have wondered how often Jesus thought about that, how often he thought about Joseph, his adopted earthly father, who didn't walk away, even though that would have been easier. 
And I wonder if this issue was close to his heart in part because it was so personal to him. Joseph's decision to stay with Mary was the opposite of hard-heartedness. It's a great scriptural example. But there's another more important example that we find, and a more encouraging one. I, I said earlier that Pharaoh was the major scriptural example of having a hard heart. But God said Israel could be hard-hearted, and that's far from the worst insult God used against them. He calls them stiff-necked, he calls them rebellious, and a lot of other things I can't repeat. I won't even repeat some of them, not even here in the park with nobody around, because it would create dangerous sound bites uh, when this thing gets posted. But to put it nicely, uh, Israel is constantly portrayed in Scripture as a faithless people, people who are spiritually unfaithful. And in fact, there are passages where God threatens to divorce his people, as he puts it, and to send them away. And if anyone ever had biblical grounds for divorce, it was surely God. But one of the coolest things about the gospel is that in all the gospels, Jesus consistently refers to himself as the bridegroom. That's the picture he paints of himself. And the church throughout the New Testament is always portrayed as the bride. And that means that ultimately God has not divorced his people. Jesus intends to show up on the wedding day. And Jesus, being a just man, has no plans to divorce his church. And he went to the cross so that an unfaithful bride could still wear white. So there's still good news. And Jesus' goal is not to crush us or leave us in a spiral of self-pity over these things. His goal is to drive us back to Calvary and back into the arms of a Savior who is never hard-hearted, but is merciful and forgiving and tender and will never leave us or forsake us, even though we're a mess. And if you feel convicted by this passage or like Jesus is picking on you, just remember that the spoiler is still true. Jesus has fulfilled the law, and he's not angry with his people, and his love is unshakable, and his heart is not hard, and he's not going anywhere. He is faithful to his faithless people, and there is no condemnation for those who are in him. Praise God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, even for these hard passages. We thank you, Lord, that you are a forgiving God, and that Jesus has fulfilled the law, Lord, and that you do care about relationships. You care about these earthly relationships, Lord, and, and about marriage. Uh, Lord, but we thank you that Jesus is the faithful bridegroom and that he is coming for us and that the wedding is still on. Lord, we thank you that we get to be there and that we, your bride, get to wear white. Lord, uh, we just pray that you would be glorified in us, Lord, in spite of us being your unfaithful people. Lord, continue to make us more like your son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good talking with you. Uh, talk to you soon. Praise God from whom all blessings.